How is Jesus better? That's the question we're discussing today on the Hero of the Story presented by the Gospel Project. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of The Hero of the Story, a podcast to help you explore the big story and big truths of Scripture. I'm Aaron Armstrong, and with me, as always, is Brian Dembozik. So, Brian, today we have finally arrived in our zigzag through the New Testament. We have arrived at a mystery. I was going to say, when you say finally, it seems like you're setting up Revelation or something. We're not there. No, no. No, we're, no, we're, we're at the one that, uh, at one that I'm really looking forward to. Because it is one of my all-time top five favorite books of the entire Bible. In your top 66? Yeah, in the top 66, it's in the top five. So (laughs) That's a good book. We're talking about Hebrews. That's right. That's right. We are talking about Hebrews, better known as the New Testament version of Leviticus. Yes. And um, yeah, and you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of important questions around this book. Yeah, I mean, it's and it's a great book. I understand why you have a deep affinity for it. It also has at least one, maybe even two of the most, perhaps among the most challenging passages in all of Scripture. Mm-hmm. It's it got really some, does. It's got some deep waters in it. Yeah, and we are not going to be addressing a ton of the big mysteries that no are i don't even have my waders on we're, we're i'm not getting in those waters no you've not had enough coffee today no and um no a, te- a teaspoon of those waters will be too deep for me so <laughs> i'm gonna stay on dry but, ground uh, here no but you know one of the things i like about this book though is, is we have no idea who wrote it no no we don't it's uh, it, it's one of those things it's fun to kind of find out where people land because it really is diverse. Um, the writer's not stated, of course, so it's not an issue mm-hmm. of we don't believe or which, uh, you know, which James wrote James, for example. Yeah. Um, it's just the author does not state who he is. And when you study the grammar in the Greek, especially the grammar and style, it doesn't seem to match any other writer. So a lot of people think it's Paul. But it doesn't feel like, and even the English, you can kind of pick up. It just doesn't feel, and Paul always introduces himself at the beginning of his letters. So it just, you know, there's a lot of of mystery. So here, let me just read just some of the candidates. Yes. Not all of them. There are even more. So Paul, Luke, Clement of Rome. That one's an interesting one, too. Yeah. Barnabas. Apollos, I, if you pressed me and said, choose one, I might land on Apollos. Really? Yeah. Okay, we're going to have to talk about that. Timothy, Peter, Silas, Jude. And there are mm. more. Yeah. Um, it, it's really, uh, you know, I, you got to be careful because it, it is an uneducated opinion, which I'm mm-hmm. full <laughs> I'm full of. Um <laughs> Apollos, just you look at Apollos and and Acts, and he is incredibly learned. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, he's recognized as an exceptional teacher. He was already teaching the things, um, you know, with awareness. It again, the the writing style doesn't seem to match Paul. It doesn't seem to match Luke. So I kind of rule those guys out. Um, and so it just kind of process of elimination. I kind Mm -hmm. of lean toward Apollos. 
Interesting. Okay. I know there's the the smart alecky comment that of course we do know the author, the Holy Spirit, but <laughs> <laughs> but I mean it's interesting to hear you say you rule out Luke. Because I mean there's actually like there there are there are scholarly works advocating for yes. the Lucan authorship of Hebrews. There are scholarly um, for all and that's why I say it's it's in ignorance. I mean yeah. I, it's sticking my big toe in that proverbial pool. Yeah. Um so yeah, some of those scholars, if if one were listening, they probably aren't. They probably are doing other things, but um, you know, nerding out in in different ways. In different ways, <laughs> um, they would probably roll their eyes at what I just said and say, oh, "Amateur." Yeah. yeah, I I think the only one that I would that I would rule out on the list, just from personal conviction, no real deep thing, not super deep thinking about this anyway, um, would be Paul. Yeah. Well, he, now whoever wrote it certainly was one of his boys. Yes, though. there's an association. Well, and that's why Luke, again, going back to him, I, I'm sure there's great arguments that, again, trump my more surface level. It just, you read the Gospel of Luke, you read the book of Acts, and you read Hebrews. It doesn't feel together. Yeah. And, you know, you and I, we both dabble in, in authoring some. Mm-hmm. It, it's hard not to write with your voice. You, you, there are just certain things, the way you 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 say something or write something. It you know it's usually you can identify mm-hmm. somebody's writing, and I just don't see that. Just on again an English level surface level reading, it doesn't feel like it connects. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I do think it's interesting that. Um, that Tertullian suggested Barnabas. Origen leaned toward Luke or Clement, and Clement is just the one that is the surprise <laughs> yeah. for me. Like that one is just like, I mean, it obviously it fits in terms of timeline. It. I'm just what? looking forward to in the eternal state when we have this game show moment where all these guys are sitting down there, um, you know, what's my line kind of game show. And, and all right, will the real author of Hebrews stand up and Holy Spirit shows. Up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'll sit down. <laughs> it's me. Come on. You should have better doctrine. Yes. That's right. So anyway, let's move on. So that's the, big, the authorship. The big o- the big idea with authorship, don't let it split your church. Instead, have fun with it like we've been doing for the last <laughs> five minutes. So um but uh but I mean some other things that we should know about this book, of course, um are you know, we've we've got to think about its purpose. So this was this was a book that was likely written before the fall of Jerusalem. So and and most of what we have in the New Testament was written pre-fall of, of Jerusalem. Seems that, um, seems that in terms of context, uh, that uh, Jewish believers, possibly for even former priests, were being persecuted by fellow Jews for their faith in Christ, and there was this great temptation. And we do see this temptation with Jewish Christians all throughout the storyline of the New Testament, really. Um, and even today. Um, and today too, yes, of pressure to return to to Judaism. Um, that's one possibility. Um, it 
could also have been a breakaway house church that had some pretty wonky teaching. And we see a lot of that today, too, um, where churches will where people will start a church and they they go off the rails pretty fast. And so this is a very timely book. It is a very, a very timely and timeless book, um, especially because of its big idea. The big idea, again, being that Jesus is better or superior. And we see throughout the scope of the book, uh, Jesus being called superior to all yeah. other forms of revelation. So he's better than, he's better than any prophet. He is better than any, um, you know, any, any way that God had spoken to the people prior to his, prior to his coming into the world. Um, he is better. Yeah. He's better than the Old Testament priesthood. He's better than the sacrificial system. He's better than the temple. He's better than the old covenant itself. And these are all things that would be absolutely shocking <laughs> to a Jewish audience to say that these things that were from that in like in the old Co covenant's case came from the mouth of God. Yeah. That Jesus is better than that. Yeah, that's, and and again, that's hard. yeah, for but for their context, this is what they needed. So you, you know, you think about whoever is writing this with probably just this burden. You're going back to that which is inferior, and leaving that which is superior. And again, when we use inferior in this context, it doesn't mean bad. <laughs> yes, but it just it's not as full. It's not as beautiful. And so, why would you go back to sacrificing animals when the sacrifice has been here? and been mm -hmm. paid for you. You know, why would you go back to using a priest and so forth? And and it's just kind of, you can read this author just pleading and saying, Jesus is it. Everything pointed to him. It's all about Jesus. You have that now. You have him now. Don't turn back. It, it I know it's hard, but don't do it. Mm -hmm. So... It, I, it's it's a, a great reminder, and to bring it into our context, not many of us are probably tempted to return to Judaism, but it's a great reminder of us to keep this Jesus laser focus, that we can get sidetracked too. We can we can lift up church practices or you know a, a number of things. We we can love Scripture mm -hmm. over Jesus. And you say, man, how can I, but scriptures, yeah, because it's a good thing. So were the Old Testament sacrifices. So were the priesthood and so forth. They were good, but they were not complete. We are not yeah. to be worshipers of Jesus. I mean, of the Bible, we are to be worshipers of Jesus, whom the Bible's about. Mm -hmm. So I think there's some great lessons. Um, so let's just talk about a couple, because there's so much in here. Yeah. Um, I'll go first. Jesus being the better priest. So we see this in chapters five and seven mostly. Uh, Aaron, you and I just recorded an episode um, talking about Jesus as the priest. And so in chapters five and seven, the writer of Hebrews, Apollos, is claiming that Jesus is the better priest than the Old Testament priesthood because he, and his argument centers on this, that he is of the line of Melchizedek, not of the line of Aaron. And he draws this from Psalm 110.4. Psalm 110.4 states this, that the Messiah is of, coming from Melchizedek's line, not lineage birth, but from that priesthood. 
And the writer then draws from Genesis 14 the account of Abraham rescuing Isaac, or rescuing Lot rather, and Melchizedek then appearing out of nowhere, and he's introduced in really lofty terms. He's a priest of the Most Holy God and King of Salem. And uh, pause right there. That name means his name Melchizedek means King of Righteousness, and Salem, he's King of Salem is peace. So he's the king of righteousness and king of peace, sounding a lot like Jesus, which is why I am in the pre-incarnate Jesus camp. Uh, but anyway, Abraham then ties to Melchizedek and ends this mysterious account. And then Melchizedek, really important, so important that Abraham tied to him is gone until he pops up again, mentioned in Psalm 110 and in here in Hebrews. So the argument that the writer makes in chapter seven is this. He says, all right, now let's think about this. The lesser tithes to the greater. We tithe in our congregation, our churches. We are the lesser tithing to God. We are giving that to God, right? So the lesser tithes to the greater, not the other way around. Abraham then was a lesser than Melchizedek. Aaron's priesthood descended from Aaron. Jesus is a priest according to Melchizedek. Therefore, the Aaronic priesthood is lesser than Jesus. Jesus is the greater priest. So that's the logic he brings to bear. But then also the writer gets practical. He says, all right, if you don't appreciate that really logical argument, which I really do, um, but if you don't, then let's talk about some practical reasons. Uh, the priests, Aaron, the Aaron priesthood, Aaronic priesthood were sinful. They need a sacrifice for themselves, right? Jesus was sinless and needed no sacrifice. The, the priests were imperfect intercessors. Jesus is the perfect intercessor. Jesus is not only the one who performed the sacrifice, he became the perfect sacrifice. So you, you look at all this together and you have, and we're going to talk about the sacrifice. We'll leave that one for you to, in a second. You look at this and you see Jesus is the better priest. And again, the writer of Hebrews is saying, why would you leave him and go back to the Jewish priests still operating when they're so much lesser. And that takes us to that to that next next question, which thank you for that setup, by the way. I try. Um, <laughs> good job. Just as the author of Hebrews, uh, possibly Barnabas. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I noticed how you, you had to deposit. I was just jerky and like, oh, it's Apollos. <laughs> well, you don't know what I'm going to do next. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, so the author, the author of Hebrews, makes uh, makes this 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 argument and and very compellingly about Jesus being being the perfect and the better priest, the the perfect intercessor for people, offering the perfect sacrifice um, because he is the priest who does not need um, need a sacrifice offered for himself. Um, and that leads to that leads to how Jesus is the better sacrifice as well. And we see the argument for that in verse in chapter 10. And so this is what possibly Luke says. Um, <laughs> he says that the the Old Testament sacrifices were recurring, but Jesus again was a one-time sacrifice for all. So in verses one through three of chapter 10, we read this, since the law has only a shat, uh, has, um, only a shadow of the good things to come and not the reality of those things, it can never perfect the worshipers by the same sacrifices they continually offer year after year. 
otherwise, wouldn't they have stopped being offered since the worshippers purified once and for all would no longer have any consciousness of sin? But in the sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year after year. And so that is that is that that hinge that it's like, why would why would this system exist? Is his point. Why was God doing this? It was to give them the understanding to create to create a picture in their mind to be ready for something greater to come. And we see, and that's something that's very consistent all throughout the Old Testament is God is 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 doing things that really only make sense when looked at through the through the lens of Jesus. Yeah. And there are other places where he's very explicit in saying, there's one who's going to come who's greater than me. And we talked about that with, with, uh, with when we talked about Christ being, being a prophet a couple of weeks ago as well. And um, we will talk about that again when we talk about him as king in, uh, in about a week or so. <laughs> but... Um, this is, but these are, but thinking about him as the sacrifice, he was the sacrifice that was needed. And not only that, he was a human sacrifice, which is actually what was needed for human sin. Yeah. Because in verse four, the, the author, maybe Clement, um, says that says, for it is impossible, not just difficult, but impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away Sins And so the argument is simply the sacrifices in the Old Testament didn't save anybody. Salvation from start to finish has always been by faith. We see that as we see that throughout, like as early as Genesis, we see this and not we see it implicitly in some in some key places. Um uh, you can infer it from uh, from as early as Genesis three, um, but you you get a little more explicit around the introduction of Noah into the narrative, yeah. and then it is outright stated with Abraham, Abram slash Abraham, yeah. Abram/Abraham, um, where it says that he believed and it was credited to him as righteousness, um, and so. That's what we need to understand here. So for us, the for us, it is faith in the one who has come past tense. And this is the key thing. It's always faith on yeah. Jesus. So that's why I'm saying the one who has come yes. past tense. Jesus has already come. He's not coming again in the sense of offering a sacrifice for sin. He is coming again to complete and consummate the work that 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 he set out to do in his life death and resurrection um, the world will be made new and there will be no more there will finally and fully be no more sin um, at that point but that's for so that's us looking back but what about the old test what about the saints in the old testament what about people who believed uh who who believed in the true god before jesus showed up um, in in our linear sense, again, lots of caveats there. <laughs> exactly. Um, for the Old Testament saints, 
their faith was in a promised one who would come. So their faith pointed forward where ours points back. And the sacrifices were the evidence of how the Old Testament saints lived out their faith. So they were a, they were a sign point yeah. pointer to this. They were a, they were a glimpse of it. The, the shadow, but not the substance. Yeah. And it was their act of obedience, just like James yeah. is talking to us in the church. You can't say you have faith and don't live in obedience. So the sacrifices. So we don't want to. We don't want to too strongly say that sacrifices were were not meaningful. Of course, they were a picture, but there was also that idea of obedience that was carried in them. So mm-hmm. the idea of a Jew who said, I believe in, in God and I trust that he's going to send one to save me from my sins. I can't do it myself. Yet I refuse to sacrifice. Then you write what I said, like James in his context. Really then? Then you don't believe. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's good. So let, let's talk about what difference this sh- should make. And we see it in verses 10 or chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. I'm going to read these verses. And as further support that this can't be Luke in authorship, notice the lack of any gratuitous timestamp. Luke is all about gratuitous timestamps in his writing. I'm going to read six verses without a single one. Okay. okay. So chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a, a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Let us hold fast onto the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. So I love, this is one of my favorite passages in Hebrews. It's in my top five. Uh, we, we look at this and you can see this contrast that the, the writer has in mind. He is thinking back to the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, with the temple still standing and the veil, the, the physical veil, that separated the holy place from the most holy place or the holy of holies. And we know that that veil blocked access to humanity. The most holy place was where God symbolically dwelled and only the chief high priest could go in there one day a year on Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. Mm -hmm. That was it. And so that veil was a reminder of the holiness of God. And what do we know happened when Jesus was crucified? That veil was torn from top to bottom, important because it symbolized an act of God coming down to man. And that Mm -hmm. veil was opened up, symbolizing that access into God's presence has been allowed now for all. Not just the chief high priest one day of the year, but everybody every day, all who trust in Christ. I think if you imagine what it would have been like for the chief high priest that day, it had to have been unnerving to know you were about to go past that veil and to think you're going to stand before a most holy God. And what if, you know, what if a sinful thought enters your mind? You know, what if you do something wrong? It probably was not an enjoyable experience. Maybe afterward, they could look back and say, wow. But I would imagine... When, when it was time for that priest to go through that veil, 
it was probably the most unnerving thing in the world. Great trepidation, mm-hmm. I would imagine. But here, notice the contrast that the writer of Hebrews says that we, normal all us, we can enter God's presence because the veil was torn. Christ, he's a picture of that. His body was broken. And we can enter and draw near with full assurance because we've been cleansed. And that full assurance does not mean we come with haughtiness. That does not mean we come with arrogance, of course. We come with great humility because we know we're not there by our own acts, our own work. We're there because of what Christ has done. But it means we know we will not be cast out. We know that we are welcomed because, again, our sin has been forgiven in Christ and our, his righteousness has been given to us, credited to us. So God will not cast us out. He welcomes us thus the full assurance. So just a great reminder of this. But then that very ending, I wanted to, to read that with it. This is not just a, a, a unilateral thing. It's not just about me or you. It is about me and you, but it's not just us. It's about us recognizing we get to do this, but also we do it together as a people. There's this vertical and horizontal aspect to this beautiful truth. So because this should be overwhelmingly beautiful to us, it should be joyful to us, it should motivate us to want to gather and to worship with other believers as we celebrate what is true of all of us as we're bound together uh, together. So again, we remember we are created as relational beings as God is relational within himself, a triune God. And so mm-hmm. part of this worship Part of this, what Jesus has brought to pass, is not only us with God, but it's us with one another and with God. So great, great truths there that the author of Hebrews is driving toward. All right, Brian. So we've talked a lot about big ideas that we can that we can learn from this book, uh, questions we should be asking. Um, we have eliminated at least one possibility of an author of this book, maybe. Um, <laughs> well, we have agreed, which probably means he probably was the author. <laughs> <laughs> it's entirely possible. So what could uh, possibly Jude be uh, teaching us from a di- discipleship perspective out of this book? Well, the first thing I think is we've alluded to this earlier. We're not going to wade into them, of course. But again, there's some challenging teaching in Hebrews. Hebrews 6. There, so Hebrews, I think it's three warnings against falling away in the mm-hmm. book. And Hebrews 6 is one of them. I think it's the first. Uh, anyway, um, but it's one of them. And it's it's troubling. It talks about, you know, it's impossible for those who have tasted. What does it mean to taste? to fall away, to restore. What does that mean? Can you fall away then and you just can't have a second chance? It is really challenging to understand. But as we look at this, I think, and as we're discipling, as we're discipling others, we, you know, even that one, we keep the bigger idea in mind. Stay faithful. The, Mm -hmm. The three warnings, again, I think it's three, the warning passages are intended for that big takeaway. Well, stay faithful and you don't have to worry about it. If you'd never fall away, (laughs) it doesn't matter to you, does it? So just stay faithful. Don't turn away, which again, it makes sense because that's what the writer needed that audience to hear. No, don't don't Mm -hmm. turn away from Jesus. Don't turn back to Judaism. Stay faithful. So 
it, it really can be challenging, but it's a good time for us to let somebody dabble with the challenges, recognize the challenges, get the headache, but at the same time, retreat to what is clear, what we know. So it's a good, it's a good opportunity to teach people how to study the Bible and even challenging passages, but still find fruitfulness from them, even if you don't have all the answers to them, of course. The other is, this is a great book to teach Bible study from a different lens because you have to chase down your Old Testament references. This is where if you have a Bible with cross references, it's key to chase them down. We don't like to do that. We like to you know, read what's in front of us and then keep turning the pages. And all those little scripture references for us to find them and turn back and find it and read, it, it, it slows us down. But Hebrews is one where you really need to do that, especially if you are not as up to speed on Old Testament worship, the Old Testament sacrifices, the priesthood. Mm-hmm. Melchizedek, for example. When you come to what the writer talks about Melchizedek, if you have not read Genesis 14, you, you lose something. So you would have to go yeah. back and read Genesis 14. So again, it's another good example as we are discipling people how to read the Bible well. That's a good, that is a really good point. And, and along with that, it is a good reminder of the New Testament needs the old. Mm-hmm. You, can't, you can't fully appreciate what's going on in the New Testament without, have, without also having access to the yeah. old. That's my uh, Old Testament seminary prof. He would love to say he, he's a fan of the New Testament because it's a great commentary on the Old Testament. That's not wrong. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing is um, the and I think that's a that's actually an, an apt and appropriate way to describe it for sure. Um, don't think of them as being separate things. Yeah. They're they go together. They have to go together. One one explains the other. Um, so. So the last thing that uh, that we'll say before we close here is that. As far as discipleship is concerned, we need to encourage one another to be consistently and constantly turning back to Christ, who is our perpetually perfect priest. Um, So that was some good alliteration. That's a Baptist message right there. Right. That's right. Does it have three points in a poem Um, (laughs) at the end? So I don't think so. You have your three points, perpetually perfect priest. You can break each one down. Good point. And then your poem could be the Peter Piper poem. <laughs> no, I'm not going to do that. Uh, see, this is why we need Jesus as our as our perpetually perfect priest, because we need him to intercede for you and me yes, we a do. lot right now, and to intercede for our listeners who may be praying imprecatory prayers um, upon us. <laughs> so, but um, but in all seriousness, we we really do need to constantly have our eye on this truth and to hold it deep within within our heart um, that Jesus is alive. Jesus, our perfect priest, is interceding for us right now. And so that changes how we pray and should give us confidence in how we pray because we pray to the Father and we pray to the Father through the Son and we pray to the Father through the Son in the power of the Spirit. And so we, so this is, and that's really important because we have the power of the Spirit 
because of what Christ has done. The Father hears our prayers th- because of and through and th- through the Son as well. And that is why we can have all the confidence in the world that he hears that and that God will answer in the way that is most befitting for his glory. So, and our good. So, on that note, thanks for chatting today, Brian. Yeah. Let's uh let's let's wrap this up and uh thank you all for listening to today's episode of the podcast if you enjoyed it please do leave a sincere five-star rating and review on apple podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen to the show and for more resources to help you focus your ministry on the gospel please visit gospelproject.com